In this episode of the St. Philip Institute podcast, we're going to talk about one big question. What was Vatican II? What was it? Have you heard of Vatican II? In this episode, I will discuss why the Council was called and what its purpose was as we kick off a new series on the Second Vatican Council, which will culminate in actually going through all of the major documents. Please stick around. I hope you enjoy. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Eternal Father, you called St. Philip the Evangelist to open his mouth and begin with Scripture, tell the good news of Jesus Christ. By virtue of our baptism, we too are called to work for the salvation of souls. Instill in our hearts the zeal of St. Philip, that we may convert hearts and minds to your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, who lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hi, welcome back to the St. Philip Institute podcast. I am really excited about today's episode, which is going to be the first in a series of episodes where I will be discussing the Second Vatican Council. Um, when I was a kid growing up, I would hear about Vatican II every now and then and wonder deeply what in the world that was. People would talk about it, and I had completely like zero idea um, what it was. And when I was in college, um, thinking about going to the seminary, I went to this tiny bookshelf that had maybe 20 books on it. It was my parish library um, at St. Michael's in Vicksburg, Mississippi, and there was a doc. There was a book like this, the second doc, the documents of the Second Vatican Council, and I thought, oh, Vatican II. Th this is what Vatican II is. And I, I took the book home and read a few of the documents, and it was way over my head. But at least I started to learn at that point now probably 15 or 16 years ago, what Vatican II meant. Um, so what we're going to be doing in this series is basically walking through the four major documents um, of the Council. I'll, I'll kind of list all of the documents, the different kinds that there are here in a little bit. Um, but essentially uh, what this series of episodes is going to do is look at the document on divine revelation, the document on the church, the document on the church in the modern world, and the document on um, sacred liturgy. But before we get to any of those individual documents, I actually just want to give you sort of an overview of what exactly was the Second Vatican Council? What was it called for in particular? Why do we have this thing called Vatican II? Um, and I just want to start at the outset by saying this is one of the things that is being talked about so, so much these days, particularly in the social media sphere uh, among like Catholics online. You probably, if you listen to our podcast, listen to others or, or are aware of others that are very, very skeptical, skeptical of Vatican II, um, maybe not just skeptical, might outright reject it. And we just thought it would be really important especially with the 60th anniversary of the opening of the Council, to spend some time here on our podcast really giving a, a, a very thorough overview um, of what these four main documents are about and what, what this Council actually was. So just really basically, um, the Second Vatican Council uh, met from 1962 to 1965. That was the years in which the Council Fathers were actually gathering, having their deliberations, and drafting and promulgating documents. But of course, you know, it starts prior to 1962. John the 23rd, St. John the 23rd now, 
was elected as Pope on October 28th, 1958. Uh, now, this was after the reign of Pius XII, who had been Pope for, for many years, um, and Pope John XXIII was a sort of an elderly man. Uh, they did not—most of the cardinals, we, we believe, did not think he would be Pope for very long, and certainly that he would be what's called a caretaker Pope, right? He wouldn't start any new projects. And sort of this is kind of a, a common thing in the Church when we have someone who's Pope for a very long time. Um, typically, the next pope is sort of just a placeholder. Let the church breathe a little bit. We just had one person who was leading things for a very long time. Let's kind of let that air out, and then maybe we can have another pope who will be around for a long time and have a lot of big projects. So John the Twenty-Third, of course, completely surprised everybody by not being a caretaker pope. He actually decided to call an ecumenical council on January twenty-fifth, nineteen fifty-nine. And uh, the council uh, would take a few years to actually start. So he announced it in 1959. The actual council began October 11th, 1962. So it was three years of preparing. Um, that preparation was was very involved. There was surveys sent out to bishops of the world. There were people within the Vatican um, in the Curia who were given the task of preparing draft documents, um, sort of a rough draft of different topics that needed to be discussed. And this process went on for three years. And of course, bishops also have to make their travel plans uh, and, and get everything set. But on October 11th, 1962, the council began its work. And it met um, not for the entire period. So it met basically every fall in from October to December, somewhere around around those dates um, in 62, 63, 64, and 65. Pope Paul VI was elected the Pope in 1963 after John XXIII died. And there was a real question as to whether or not the council would even continue. Um, but as soon as, as Paul VI was elected, he announced his decision to continue the work of the council. In the end, the council produced 16 major documents, and this is one of the additions that you can find pretty easily of those uh, 16 conciliar documents. This is the Flannery uh, translation. There's another translation by Abbott, which is very good as well, and they come in you know, different sizes. One of them is green. Um, so this is one of, the, one of the most common ways to find the documents. You can, of course, also get them online uh, for free from the Vatican's website. Um, I have been using this edition from Word on Fire, which was produced last year. It's only got the four major documents. So if you're playing the at-home game on our podcast and you want to follow along with us over the next you know, several weeks as we go through these four documents, this would be a nice uh, resource to sort of help follow along. Um, I've also been doing a fair bit of reading from this book by Matthew Lamb and Matthew Levering. Well, they're the editors. It's called Vatican II Renewal Within Tradition. Excellent, excellent secondary source. And then I'm lucky to also have friends who are writing a book called the, A Very Short Introduction to Vatican II. Um, Stephen Bullivant and Sean Blanchard are a couple of friends of mine. They've let me proofread that text, and it has been a very, very helpful overview um, that's going to shape especially my remarks in this episode. So there were 16 documents produced in the Council, and they're in four, uh, three different categories. So there's constitutions, declarations, and decrees. There are four constitutions that the, that the uh, Council produced, and those are what's in this uh, Word on Fire collection. It's the Dogmatic Constitution on Divine Revelation, so on, the, on Scripture, Dei Verbum is the Latin title. And then there's the Dogmatic Constitution on the Church, 
Lumen Gentium is the uh, Latin title. The pastoral constitution, so there's two dogmatic constitutions, then a pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world, Gaudium et Spes, and then a constitution on the sacred liturgy. Um, the constitution on sacred liturgy came out in 1963. Uh, the one on the church came out in 1964. And then in 1965, we got the constitution on the church in the modern world and the one on divine revelation. There's then nine declarations, which are much shorter documents on much more narrow, specific topics. And then there are three decrees on even more narrow topics, and those are generally even shorter documents. And I'm not going to list what every single decree and declaration was about, um, but those are, so those are the 16 um, total documents. Um, so there's four constitutions, nine declarations, and three decrees. Now, um, just a little bit of background on what a council is, uh, since Vatican II is a kind of council. Councils are meetings of the bishops of the world that are called periodically to address the needs of the church in a given uh, time period, and oftentimes that has meant settling doctrinal debates. Um, different numbers of bishops from different parts of the world have attended the councils throughout the history of the church. Vatican II um, is the, was the 21st ecumenical council, so we average one every hundred years, although there weren't any until the 300s, probably because it was illegal to be a Christian in the Roman Empire, and thus would have been very dangerous to gather the world's bishops um, prior to that. Um, and the reason it's, it's called Vatican II is because every council is named after the place that it's hosted at. So the first council was the Council of Nicaea, and it was hosted in, you guessed it, Nicaea. Um, Vatican I, the first council actually hosted in the Vatican, met in the 1800s, um, and Vatican II is the second one to be hosted at the Vatican. Um, and it's also true that Vatican II is in large way a continuation of the work that started at Vatican I. So this council was, I think, 1868 to 1870. Uh, it was interrupted by the outbreak of the Franco-Prussian War. And so there was actually something like 52 documents that were, you know, supposed to be part of Vatican I, and, and they may not have produced all of them if there had not been a war, uh, but they wound up only actually promulgating two texts, and one of them was the uh, document that gives us the definition of papal infallibility. Uh, there was a plan at that council to really discuss ecclesiology. What is the nature of the church? How does it function? And the idea was it will start by talking about the papacy, then talk about the episcopacy, then the priesthood, then the laity. Those other projects never happened. And so in, in, in large part, Vatican II was understood not just to be it's coincidentally happening at the Vatican, but also to pick up on some of the work that wasn't completed by Vatican I. Now, John Twenty-Third, of course, had uh, different concerns, not just finishing the work of Vatican I, and his primary concern that underlies the entire reason and rationale for the Council is that the Church needed to engage with the modern world more effectively and to share the gospel more effectively. And those are two distinct but related things. So in terms of relating to the world more effectively, um, really the, the, the Catholic Church had been through a lot of changes. The world had been through a lot of changes 
um, between Vatican I and Vatican II from the, from the late 1800s to the 1960s, and there just hadn't really been a chance for the Church to really patiently take its time and sort of assess, like, what does the world look like right now, and how does the Church fit into that? What can the Church do to better serve the world. Um, and so just, you know, examples, they called Vatican I, and there was the Franco-Prussian War that interrupted that. Then there was the loss of the Papal States shortly thereafter. Um, in fact, uh, Leo XIII, who was Pope from um, 1878 to 1903, his predecessor, Pius IX, uh, there was a mob uh, when they were burying his body, and when they called the next conclave, they were not sure, the cardinals at the time, if they were safe to even host a conclave in the Vatican, right? So that's a lot of turmoil. Follow that up with the modernist crisis. Then you have World War One. Then you have World War Two, And shortly thereafter, we're at 1962. So between the loss of the Papal States all the way up to, you know, World War Two, the Church has had very little time to breathe and sort of assess what is our mission and how can we do it better? And this is kind of what's what's underlying John the 23rd's decision to open a council. So he gives his opening address on October 11th, 1962, that I want to kind of give you some highlights from. And he says that the church must once more reaffirm that teaching authority of hers, which never fails, but will endure until the end of time. The present council is a special worldwide manifestation by the church of her teaching office, and listen to this line, exercise in taking account of the errors, needs, and opportunities of our day. So there is a very popular notion today that, you know, Vatican II wasn't, wasn't called to address any problems. It's, it's, it is called a pastoral council, uh, sort of as a stab at it by, by a lot of people, especially online. Um, but John the Twenty Third makes clear throughout his opening address that he has confidence in the church's authority, he has confidence in the power of the gospel, and even that it should be so strongly proclaimed that those who are outside of the church, even non-believers altogether, should be drawn to the light of Christ and to the light of which is the church. Um, and so in that opening address, I think it, he really dispels a lot of sort of the, the naysayers of, of what the council was or, or, you know, what a great failure it was. Um, John Twenty-Third is, is both laying down a, a lot of confidence in the church's ability to convince the world and recognizing the need for the church to speak in a different fashion to the world that had changed so much since its last council. And if you back up even a little bit more behind that, Vatican I's in the 1800s, the previous ecumenical council was in the was the Council of Trent, and so things really have changed since the Council of Trent. And John the Twenty Third wants the wants the Church to sort of take account of that. And in his opening address, he actually outlines the way the twentieth century has given us evidence that there's a greater need for the gospel. We can see in the atrocities of the twentieth century the fruits of people living their lives without having Christ at the center. And he wants to call people to restore Christ to the center of their lives and to the center of the world. So he says this, The major interest of the ecumenical council is this, that the sacred heritage of Christian truth be safeguarded and expounded with greater efficacy. And he goes on, and I'm going to read just a paragraph of this opening address because I think it's really, really important. He says, What is needed at the present time is a new enthusiasm a new joy and serenity of mind in the unreserved acceptance by all of the entire Christian faith, 
without forfeiting that accuracy and precision in its presentation, which characterized the proceedings of the Council of Trent and the First Vatican Council. What is needed, and what everybody imbued with a truly Christian, Catholic, and apostolic spirit craves today, listen to this, is that this doctrine shall be more widely known, more deeply understood, and more penetrating in its effects on men's moral lives. What is needed is that this certain and immutable doctrine to which the faithful owe obedience be studied afresh and reformulated in contemporary terms. For this deposit of faith, or truths which are contained in our time-honored teaching, is one thing. The manner in which these truths are set forth, with their meaning preserved intact, is something else. So what John the Twenty-Third kind of displays in this opening address, which is included in this uh, collection by Word on Fire, um, is that the gospel has to be the central, has to occupy the central place in the church and in the world, and the the church in proclaiming the gospel um, needs to to be heard better. Um, there are human and secular attempts at happiness that people have been trying to build up, and those have just not worked. We need to restore the true source of joy, the true source of authority, back into the world, and that comes only through a better evangelization. In the key opening address, he also, though, note, um, notes uh, a desire to have unity with our separated, separated brethren and to non-Christians in the world. Now, uh, you can read, you know, John the Twenty-Third's opening address if if you like. There's uh, obviously I can't tell you everything about it in in this one episode, but I want to also kind of take a, a bigger view of what that's that's John the Twenty-Third's sort of motivations and his explanation about the purpose of the council at the outset. Now, the council has happened already. We're sixty years removed from it. What can we, kind of looking back, say, okay, these are some of the key themes on a really sort of big-picture level, say this is what Vatican II sort of was about. One key term for sure is the the Italian term aggiornamento, which can be uh, translated as updating or to sort of let in fresh air. The Church, the Catholic Church, had really not been able to take account of the changes of modernity, as I mentioned a little while ago. Since the Enlightenment, the Church had been in a pretty defensive posture um, with respect to changing political environments, with respect to new philosophical systems, new ways of interpreting the Scripture, um, new religious developments. Like, there's all of these really profound changes happening in the world, and for the most part, it's at least officially, the posture of the Catholic Church had been for for several centuries to just kind of try and push that out. Just let's keep all of that out of here. Sometimes this is called a ghetto mentality, right? Let's let's build up walls and defend the treasure that that the church has. And that's an understandable reaction to some of the changes that were going on. But after several centuries, you know, what what John the 23rd is starting to see is we have this great treasure but how are, how's the world going to know if all we're doing is building up walls? How can we open up the windows so that people can see what we have, which is the, the, the gospel, which is uh, salvation, uh, but also how can we better understand what human beings, what, what humanity is like right now, and relate to them differently? Um, so 
the uh, th- this is something that really is it's, it's a demonstration of how the church tends to be slow to respond to things. Um, there are though some some sort of currents, early currents of a uh, an attempt to be a little bit more engaging and uh, open to the modern world even before Vatican II. Um, and this is actually sort of an interesting kind of scholarly question, you know, okay, Vatican II happened in 1962, but when did it really start? When, when, when's, when is the deep history of Vatican II? How far back does that go? Um, some people uh, will, will take all, uh, the route that it goes all the way back to the Jansenist crisis, uh, the Synod of Pistoia, uh, Pope Benedict XV's reign. Um, I myself like to point to the importance of Leo Thirteenth, but this idea of a giornamento fundamentally is the church wanting to find a way other than condemnation to deal with all of the new things happening in the world. Other than just declaring what's wrong, how can we relate to the world? How can we positively proclaim the gospel? And maybe how can we learn from modern changes. So Pope Benedict XV, who was Pope from 1740 to 1758, for instance, um, tried in his own time to encourage a more fruitful dialogue with the scientific method, um, to, to encourage more modern approaches to the study of Scripture, and even encouraged access to the Bible in the vernacular. Um, there's a, a synod at Pistoia, uh, which actually argued for vernacular in the liturgy, um, a little bit more decentralized view of authority within the church, and spoke against coercion in religious belief. Um, and another aspect of uh, aggiornamento is, is not just what the church is saying, so maybe we're not just going to issue condemnations, but what are we going to actually? But what are we? What's the style or the form? So the the length of these documents from Vatican II and the style, theological essays, not lists of propositions that have to be affirmed or that need to be denied, is a very very big uh, impact of this aggiornamento mentality to update not just um, the the types of things that are said, but even the style in which they are said. Um, so the proclamations of these, the, the promulgations, rather, of these documents mark a huge shift in the way that the Church wants to relate to the world. Um, Leo XIII and his papacy um, made some pretty big steps towards, uh, you know, m- engaging more moderately or more openly with modernity. But one thing that, that I do want to point out in particular about Leo XIII is he made John, um, he made Cardinal Newman— a cardinal. He named John Henry Newman to be a cardinal, and that was a very important symbol of the idea of the development of doctrine being sort of recognized and brought into the fold. Um, so the development of doctrine is also one of the big themes of Vatican II, and that's something we'll, we'll continue to talk about as I go through the documents, but it, it really is a recognition that there are things within the Church that can develop, that can organically grow and be understood differently, be expressed differently. Um, and that sometimes that development is is going to look and maybe even will be a reversal um, in in things that turn out not to be absolutely um, unchangeable. So one of the themes that you see John the Twenty Third talk about, and um, many of the documents, is the distinction between the timeless truths that cannot change and the things that can be prudently adapted. 
So we'll just one real, you know, quick example um, for the sake of this overview, the use of vernacular in the liturgy, right? Um, in the Latin rite, you know, since the Council of Trent, Mass was in Latin, but there have always been other masses celebrating in other celebrated in other language in other parts of the church, other languages in other parts of the church, and some of those languages were vernacular. Um, so this would be one thing where you don't see very much vernacular in the liturgy uh, until after Vatican II, and there is a, a reason for that is that that is a thing that can possibly change. So the development of doctrine, which which has its roots in John Henry Newman. Um, is going to be very prevalent in the Second Vatican Council. And you'll see this in a particular way in the document on divine revelation, which is Dei Verbum. And also, although we're not going to talk about it in the podcast, I don't think, um, in the Declaration on Religious Liberty. Um, so we have adjournamento and development of doctrine are two like really big themes that kind of override all of the different currents at Vatican II. A third one is this idea of resourcement. All right, which which is this was a theological movement in the early 20th century that had the idea of going back to the sources. Now, the sources that they were going back to were scripture, the church fathers, and the liturgy um, to really try and renew theological uh, uh, to renew theology um, to to find a new way of doing theology, not just as the scholastic method that had been popular uh, at, in the 1800s and leading into the 20th century, but to return to uh, a method that that places Scripture more at the forefront. There's a big theme across Vatican II. You'll see it in many of the documents. How important it is to root ourselves back clearly into the Scriptures. Um, also, the the role of the Church Fathers of the Patristic era and to uh, a better appreciation of the richness of liturgy and the way that liturgy can shape theology. So the Resourcement movement um, was, was popular. Many of the, the peritus or periti, the experts at the theological experts at the Second Vatican Council, were from this Resourcement school. One of them you've heard of, certainly, uh, Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger, who, of course, became Pope Benedict XVI. Um, there are others. Yves, Con- Yves Congar was one. Um, and um, I'm sure many other names that, that, that aren't really worth listing off, but this movement of going back to the sources, of, of trying to, to root, root ourselves into the, the earlier part of our history, and especially the scriptures and the, and the patristics, um, plays a big role in the way Vatican II's deliberations and debates took place. And that aggiornamento, again, changing of like just the way, the method, the manner in which we relate to the modern world is a really, really big difference. And so, you know, if you compare the documents from, say, Vatican II and the Council of Trent, you're going to see a huge difference in style. Uh, the faith that is being proclaimed, and John the Twenty-Third talks about this in his opening address, is the same faith, but it is being expressed in a different way. So just to kind of recap, what's Vatican II? It is the 21st Ecumenical Council. Um, ecumenical councils are called by, by the Pope. Uh, they're attended by bishops, ratified by the Pope. They promulgate documents to deal with the needs of the Church. Um, and the, the primary concern of John the Twenty-Third was that there were problems in the world, there were problems in the Church. They could be solved by better evangelization, by forming more more um, fervent disciples within the church, who could then go out to the to the world and evangelize better, and then draw people back or draw people into the church. Um, some unique things about this council is that 
it truly was a much more universal council than others um, in the church have been. Um, something like 2,500 bishops were able to attend. It's not the case that every single bishop in the world attended. Some of them were, you know, too sick, too old. Some of them lived in communist countries that didn't want them to travel to Rome. Um, but far and away the largest number of bishops that have ever attended a council in the history of the church. And they were from different parts of the world that were typically not going to be able to be present um, at, at every council that, that the church has always had. So uh, very, very unique in that way. Also, the presence and the involvement in some way of mass media. Um, media coverage of the council was very, I mean, this is this is the first time there is media, right, um, in, in, the, in the modern sense of the term. So there are people doing interviews. Um, people in the United States, you know, could, could watch Archbishop Philip Hannon, for instance, from Washington, D.C., um, doing press, you know, a, a press conference after, you know, each day's uh, events unfolded at the council. Um, there's also, you know, Protestants and Jewish and Orthodox people who were invited to attend. Um, something that I, that I just learned recently, this invitation had been made at other councils, but the invitations were declined. So the church had actually tried to open other ecumenical councils to, you know, non, uh, non-Catholic uh, Christians to, to come and observe. Nobody had actually taken them up on that matter. Um, this time uh, they did, though. So it's, uh, it's, it is a very, very big um, this is a huge, significant event that the book I mentioned by Stephen Bullivant and Sean Blanchard, a very short introduction, um, they make the claim that this is the Vatican II is the biggest religious event of any kind of religion, not just within Catholicism, to take place within the last 500 years. So that's just a little bit, and I promise you just a little bit, about kind of what Vatican II was. Hopefully you have a little bit better understanding of it now. And... I hope you stick with us for this series. Is what we're going to do again, as I said, is walk through each of the four uh, constitutions. So we'll start with the constitution on um, the liturgy, which was the first constitution, the first document promulgated by the Second Vatican Council, um, and it was uh, published officially promulgated in 1963. So we'll begin with that document and then slowly work our way through the others in chronological order. And uh, yeah, I hope you are, are able to get something out of this. And at least, at the very least, now when someone says, what is Vatican II, you'll have some kind of answer and you won't be like I was as a kid, just like completely clueless. So I hope you enjoyed this overview and I really, really encourage you to stick with us over these next several weeks as we take a deeper look at the four major constitutions of the Second Vatican Council. Thanks. Thanks.